All right, I'd like to welcome everybody to our Tactical Sciences uh, Coordination Network podcast. Uh, in this installment, we're going to be talking to the folks from the National Animal Health Laboratory Network, uh, the NONG. Uh, we're joined today by Christy Loyakino, the coordinator, the national coordinator of the network uh, with USDA APHIS Veterinary Services, and uh, Jamie Henningsen, who is the director of the uh, Level One Laboratory at Kansas State University. Uh, my name is Marty Draper, and I am the uh, Agricultural Experiment Station Director and Associate Dean for Research at Kansas State University, and one of the leads on the Tactical Sciences Program. So really want to welcome you to, to the podcast today, Christy and Jamie. Looking forward to hear what you have to, to share with us. Thank you. So I'd start out, let's just kind of throw out a, a, the what is question. And uh, I'm, I'm really curious, and I'm sure our listeners would like to know, what is the NOM, the National Animal Health Laboratory Network? Um, I think this kind of originates back to about the start of the millennium and soon after uh, the 9-11 disaster. Uh, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Sure, I can get started. Uh, so the NOM is a network of laboratories that were identified to do testing for animal diseases of high consequence. And 9-11 uh, certainly played a role. What also played a role was the foot and mouth disease outbreak in the UK. Uh, the United States looked internally and said, if we had something happen like that to us, how would we deal with it? Would we be able to identify it quickly and accurately? And would we be able to respond uh, to a level that would handle such a large outbreak. I believe the UK spent uh, around 8 billion US dollars to handle that. And when the US looked internally to uh, ask those questions, um, we determined that we really didn't have a, a network of laboratories with standardized capabilities um, to handle or and with the capacity to handle such an outbreak. So um, based on some regulations that were put in place and some funding that was identified. Um, USDA, two of the agencies within the USDA, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, as well as the National Institute for Food and Agriculture, partnered with the American Association for Veterinary Laboratory Diagnosticians, or AAVLD, to identify uh, a list of laboratories around the country that already had uh, strong infrastructure and ex expertise to take on some of that surveillance testing. So in 2002, 12 laboratories were identified around the country. They're called our core laboratories. They're the originals. Um, they were set up as a network and provided funding to support what infrastructure they had and to support some testing um, for some high consequence diseases that they would do for the federal government. Um, in order to increase the integrity of the testing across those 12 laboratories. Uh, there were a list of founding principles that were identified and that's basically just standardizing everything the laboratories did for the knowledge testing. So a test result coming out of California could be considered as accurate and, and efficiently provided as uh, one coming out of Georgia for the same disease. Um, so those 12 laboratories, yep. yep. 
Sorry, I think you make a great point that there were a lot of things that were happening around the turn of the century with 9-11 was kind of a trigger to get some funding loosened up, but we'd been dealing with some, some high consequence animal diseases prior to that that were a great concern in the livestock industry. So uh, it's not just one thing, but it's a whole bunch of things that came together to be able to help make these networks come into, into existence. And, and I think it's a great example of the partnership between a couple of federal agencies and, um, and the universities as well. So I think you mentioned a little bit about um, it, it works because we all work together. So um, maybe we can talk a little bit about that collaborative nature and how we're, how we're working together to meet some of the capacity necessary to, uh, to uh, address some of the testing that's required for, for confirming these diseases. Yeah, absolutely. So the partnership is is truly there. We're we're the network or the sorry the laboratories that make up the network are state and university associated laboratories primarily that are doing testing day in and day out for their states or their regions uh, for endemic diseases. So we're just coming in and asking them to do the same thing for high consequence animal diseases that we will fund and coordinate um, everything that they do day in and day out is already established and um, their expertise and infrastructure is already there. So these labs handle large scale testing and capacity for endemics um, every day. And we're just asking them to expand that into the testing that we're asking them to do. You know, it's, it's you know, that you think about this network of all these people and all these agencies and all these universities that are involved, but. Does the rich reach go beyond that as well? Because you've got state veterinarians potentially in some of the state departments of ag. You've got extension veterinarians working through the universities. Uh, you've got practicing veterinarians in the field. Um, how do they fit into the network? Are they kind of the eyes and, and ears in the field? Absolutely, yeah. And as a matter of fact, our governing body for the NALM is made up of laboratory directors as well as state animal health officials. We actually have four state animal health officials that rotate on and off of our governing body to provide the input from the state perspective. And uh, all of the, the state representatives that are submitting samples to these diagnostic labs um, are part of you know, our extended network. We work hard to communicate with them um, and take input from them so that we can see what's in the field and translate that to what is needed from the laboratories. Thank you for uh, for straightening me out. They're not a state veterinarian. They're a state animal health official. And I should know that. I work on the plant side and there's a state plant health official. So you would think I would be able to turn that terminology around. Um, so Jamie, I'm kind of curious, what is it that you see in, um, in the state lab in, in Kansas? What kinds of things come in and, and um, what's the focus of your testing? Christy, you mentioned standardization of all the labs in the network. Um, and so we have a certain number of foreign animal diseases that we test for the NOLM. And so, and then we have case definitions for those diseases. So if we see if a practicing veterinarian or a state animal health official see a disease that fits one of those case definitions, they will contact us and work with us to set up um, an investigative testing. And so we do those for foot and mouth disease, um, African swine fever commonly and classical swine fever. You will see from last year's summer, we had a lot of vesicular stomatitis throughout the United States. So we did a lot of 
FMD investigations to rule out FMD working with our state animal health officials and the NOLM. And so that's mainly our role. Um, we're here for an outbreak, but we are also constantly doing investigations and surveillance for these diseases as all of the laboratories in the network are. So vesicular stomatitis you mentioned, is that, isn't that an equine disease? It affects um, ruminants also. So horses, ruminants. And so, yep, we have, we? To, so it looks like foot and mouth disease. And so it's very, um, it is a rule out that we have so to we've got, test. We've got this broad spectrum disease that, that crosses, crosses animal species and looks like other really important disease. Not that, not that I'm trying to minimize uh, vesicular stomatitis, but, but it's not necessarily on our list of, uh, of the, the top things that we're looking for, right? Well, only because it does look like foot and mouth disease should it be found in a ruminant. And then we look to the horses and say, well, if they've got it and we diagnose it there, then that gives us a little bit of breathing room because it puts foot and mouth disease much lower on the list. Right. So kind of, it's kind of a screening tool that you, you look at in, in minimizing some of the potential worst consequences that we could be dealing with. So you talk about uh, uh, foot and mouth disease. That's classified as a select agent, right? Yes. yes. Mm -hmm. So how many select agents do we have to deal with and what are select agents? So I can jump in and- uh, I like to go with us. Uh, yeah, Jamie, you, you might have some uh, a laboratory perspective that I wouldn't be able to share, but so select agents are, uh, for our purposes, animal diseases that are identified as highly contagious and having a significant economic impact. A laboratory must be registered with either the CDC or the USDA to manage um, select agent um, materials. We don't publish the list of our laboratories that have select agent registrations for obvious reasons. We don't want, to want anyone outside of the US to know who to target, um, but we do have laboratories that have that uh, registration and they are able to manage those uh, samples with, with confirmed select agent uh, pathogens. So the short story on that is they're the worst of the worst. And for the most part, we don't have them and we definitely don't want them. Exactly. <laughs> so so we, you're, I'm, I'm guessing that we, do, we deal with both domestic uh, threats as well as external threats. Um, you know, what kinds of things that we might encounter in the US already might we be particularly uh, concerned about? Um, well, I think the threat of a, an external source infecting our animal agriculture is significant. We're always uh, concerned and diligent in identifying the potential for animal disease because it, it could certainly be um, a nefarious in introduction from an external source. Um, we look to what comes into the country that affects or interacts with our livestock um, and our animal agriculture. Um, and again, we just, we stay diligent, diligent, sorry, diligent with our uh, field investigations when we see clinical signs or illness in animals. 
Yeah, and to add on to that, so the Border Patrol yeah, plays a big role in keeping those out. And then we do see some of our endemic, especially in pigs, some of our endemic diseases, and we talked about vesicular stomatitis, that look very similar to those uh, outbreak diseases or foreign animal diseases that we have to um, uh, do surveillance and testing for. So really, we're concerned about all the things that have high contagion and could wind up being moved in trade, in or out through trade. Um, Yes. So we've got some issues with um, with swine in Asia right now, and we really don't want that problem coming our way, right? No. Correct. Yeah, we have African swine fever is probably the biggest threat to our swine industry. We export um, almost 30% of the swine that are produced in this country. And if we were to identify or confirm African swine fever in this country, our trade borders would shut down and 30% of the pigs produced in this country would have nowhere to go. And that would be a significant um, blow to the swine industry itself. So they, are, they have been uh, strong advocates for us to build our response um, to a potential incursion. And we move, we move a, lot of, a lot of pork into Asia, don't we? Yep. Yeah, like I said, about almost 30% of the pork we produce is exported. And most of that, I believe, is going to, to Asia. Yeah, yeah. Um, so when we think about some of these other diseases that, that could affect um, our livestock, we've got things like Rift Valley fever. Um, I don't know where PERS falls in, in that, uh, that whole um, whole scheme. Um, and, I, and I'm going to foul it up if I try and say what PERS stands for, but it's PRRS, right? As the respiratory. Porcine reproductive and respiratory syndrome. Yep. So are there some similarities in some of these diseases, much like we see with vesicular stomatitis and FMV? Yes. yes I, go, go ahead, Christine. <laughs> in some cases, yes, we can. We've, we've seen uh, uh, here a PCV2 out, uh, outbreak that um, cause splenic lesions similar to one of the, uh, the African swine fever. And so it turned out to be a PCV2 outbreak. Um, but and so PCV2, we have to surveil for those. And PCV2 is? Porcine zircovirus 2. Okay. So. And you said another thing in there that I didn't follow. Uh, the the spurca or... Maybe maybe it was the maybe it was the Z word that you had in there. There's too many words here that are technical. <laughs> I like Christy add on. I'm not sure what you what I said that you missed. Well, I think it was circle Yeah, PCV. Maybe that was what it was. Okay, there were too many big words that hit me too fast. I'm just a plant guy, so. Uh, yeah. Um, so I'm really, I'm really curious, um, as we've talked about these, this potential overlap from species to species, um, what do we have for um, concerns about trans, transboundary um, issues? Are we looking at the potential of moving from animals to humans in any of these diseases? Oh, absolutely. Any kind of uh, potential zoonotic illness um, is something that we're looking into. Avian influenza and swine influenza are two diseases that are within the non scope. So we have laboratories providing surveillance um, and outbreak testing for both of those viruses, both being um, influenza A. Um, and they could certainly 
uh, have zoonotic potential and affect humans. We work very closely with the CDC to identify isolates, um, primarily in swine right now, that um, have jumped into the human population or back and forth between humans and swine and swine and humans. Um, keeping track of the isolates from the human population at CDC and the animal isolates um, at USDA and comparing um, what's out there and where it is. Uh, for oh. SARS-CoV-2, that's another disease that we've identified in animals as well as humans. And our purpose, um, although not within the non-scope, the non-laboratories um, are doing quite a bit of testing in animals. So we're keeping track of where the disease is in animals and comparing it to um, humans with disease in the same area to identify if there is any jumping from one to the other. And it's been determined that humans will infect animals, um, but has not been consistently reported that animals will, will infect humans. So that's the good news. But uh, you know, without our, our work, without the non-laboratories providing that testing, we wouldn't uh, know quite as much about the virus and its, and its pathogenesis and where it falls. I think that's a really interesting and relevant um, uh, consideration when we think about what's going on right now with, with COVID-19 and the virus that causes it, SARS-CoV-2, um, that, that you actually do uh, the kinds of things that might be helpful if something like this occurred in the United States, because you're watching those kinds of infections that are cropping up in animals that have the potential of moving over into humans and keeping track of where they occurred. Um, one of the big knocks, I guess, that we're hearing about uh, the COVID-19 situation is where did it really come from and how do we, what documents do we have to, to show that to be true? So it's pretty cool that we've got this network that, uh, that serves that purpose here in the US that, and that it's such a collaboration as it is. Um, it's just a really cool thing. Um, so do we know where some of these threats may have occurred in the past that are that cause our animal outbreaks? And do we keep track of those locations? You know, think about things like anthrax. Um, you've got soil-borne uh, uh, survival of the pathogen, and sometimes you're concerned that maybe exposure in a given field might lead to other outbreaks. Are there scenarios like that that come into play? I'm going to turn that to Jamie since that is outside of non-scope, but still a very significant um, threat. Yeah, so if you're talking more of a regulatory type disease, we work through those with our state animal health officials too. So not only do we have non-scope diseases, which are the, the major foreign animal diseases that we test for, we also work with our state animal health official, officials to test for regulatory diseases in our state. Um, some of them having public health concerns, others not. Um, Q fever, anthrax, all of those are um, testing we would do that we uh, coordinate with our state animal health officials and are considered regulatory diseases that are outside the Nolan scope. Can I throw brucellosis in there too? Yep, brucellosis fits there too. Yeah, now I've covered everything I know about animal disease. So, <laughs> yep, those automatically report to our state animal health officials when we idea positive and so they have immediate and they can follow up on it and so... I think that's a great example, though, of how the scope of your labs addresses the, the state concerns, the regulatory concerns, and also these high consequence uh, concerns that have, have national uh, 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 
um, consequences. So um, it just speaks to how well everything is working together, how strong that network is, and then potentially how it can play into the bigger, the bigger networks that uh, could have some overlap. So I'm curious what you do about data. Um, there must be a tremendous amount of d data that gets generated and you must track where some of these things, these things uh, occur. Um, how do you keep records of, of where testing has occurred? I'm guessing most of the non-consequence diseases are negatives, which is also very important information, but uh, must you must generate a tremendous amount of data. Absolutely, yeah. The non-laboratories provide quite a bit of information, um, not only for foreign animal disease investigations and outbreak testing, but also just the, the typical surveillance, the active surveillance that they do uh, day in and day out for non-scope diseases is utilized by our Center for Epidemiology and Animal Health, or CIA, um, to inform the surveillance programs. So they use data that's collected through the non-laboratories to um, help them determine if they should make changes in the surveillance program or expand the surveillance program. Um, so all of the data that the, the non-laboratories produce for our scope testing goes into a database. Um, our um, laboratory messaging service or LMS database. Um, and one of the focuses that we've had from the non-program office is to support our laboratories to electronically message that data. So as soon as a test result is entered into the laboratory information management system of a laboratory or their LIM system, it's automatically sent to our database. So it's almost um, a real-time transfer of that data so that on our side, on the federal side, we've got information for our um, decision makers to use, again, through surveillance programs, through FAD or foreign animal disease investigations, or also during outbreaks. So we have um, level designations within the NOM. So our level one laboratories, um, such as Jamie represents, are our top tier, our top level laboratories. They do most of the testing. They take on most of the responsibilities and we look to them for their expertise in most cases. Our level two laboratories um, do you know, almost as much testing, take on almost as much responsibility and don't quite have the same requirements as our level one labs. And then we ha also have um, a handful of level three laboratories that provide some of the surveillance for us and are often um, single species laboratories, like a poultry laboratory. Um, so for each level designation, we have um, required certain things. And for level one, it's always been you must electronically message your test results. Um, recently, our governing body, the coordinating council, determined that all non-laboratories should be electronically messaging the diseases. So three years ago, we set forth um, the request, uh, and which became a requirement for all, non, all level one laboratories to electronically message all testing data um, by the end of fiscal year 2019. Our level two laboratories had the same requirement at the end of fiscal year 2020. And this year by uh, September 30th, all of our level three laboratories will have that requirement as well. So starting October 1st, all non-laboratories will be providing their test data electronically, which is a huge step forward for the network. 
So, so you're raising the standards as time goes by and, and labs become collaborators in this network. That's a, a really important thing, I think, as we see technologies changing and the, the speed of information. Uh, we, just, we just can't sit around and wait. So having that electronic connection is really important. So you talk about three tiers of, or three levels of laboratories. Um, you've got level one, level two, and level three. Um, there must be something like, I think, 20 some uh, level one labs and some other number of the twos and threes. So does that get us pretty close to covering all of the states with some reporting mechanism? We have a total of 60 non-laboratories across the U.S. in 42 states. So yeah, we, we focus primarily in uh, the central eastern part of the country and uh, central part of the country. Um, as you can imagine, the western half of the country is a little bit more sparsely populated by laboratories because it's more sparsely populated by animals. Um, our northeast uh, definitely has a good number, but um, five of the laboratory or five of the states that don't have non-laboratories are actually in the northeast. So there is room to grow, I think. Um, and we have we do get requests from laboratories around the country that are not part of the non. Um, as to what it takes to become a non-lab and what are the requirements. And um, we're actively working with three or four labs now to determine if they can meet the minimum requirements and um, become part of non. So I'm kind of curious what it would look like if somebody recognizes a potential problem, uh, let's say a herdsman in some remote county of Kansas, Jamie, identifies that they've got a sick animal. How, what, what might that look like? Would they contact their veterinarian who would then trigger something more beyond that? How would this work? Yeah, most often they contact their veterinarian and their veterinarian is gonna respond. And then if they recognize it as a potential um, foreign animal disease uh, differential, um, they will contact the state animal health officials who will send out a foreign animal disease diagnostic um, veterinarian uh, to um, sample the case. Um, and then they'll send it in and we coordinate with the NOLM too. And they um, uh, assign it a priority, which tells us how fast we need to test it. Priority one, which is um, high, a high... Um, I suspect for a foreign animal disease, we're gonna come in and test it that night at any time. Um, and so priority two, priority three, um, different schedules, but so they do classify those. And so we'll get the classification and we'll decide how fast we need to proceed with testing. Um, and so um, I think that answers most of the question. I don't know if Christy has anything to add on that. So, so how I think you covered take, that well. So how long would it take from a, sample, uh, uh, a potential uh, issue being identified till when we have a final diagnosis and are ready for an action? It really depends on the priority level of that sample and what how um, concerned we are about it when we assign that priority level. If it's a priority one, they're driving it to us that night and we are coming in to test that night and sending off the uh, duplicate sample to Plum Island. Um, and so um, it'll be, we'll have preliminary the following day or even that night. Um, I think we've done results at 2 a.m. before. Um, so we will get that one done. Um, priority two and priority three, probably next day. So confirmatory samples go to Plum Island. 
Mm-hmm. So how do you get a how do you get a sample to Plum Island? Does FedEx have a boat? So the confirmatory testing is done either in, on Plum Island or in Ames, Iowa, depending on the disease. Because the National Veterinary Services Laboratories is a group of four labs, three of which are in Ames, Iowa, and the fourth is on uh, Plum Island off of Long Island. So yeah, it depends on what disease we're talking about and where those confirmatory samples will go. Um, if it's a priority one and samples are heading towards Plum Island in some states and for some cases, uh, the state might have the National Guard fly the sample to Plum Island. That's happened um, before. States may also charter planes to fly um, samples to Plum Island. And then, yep, we have somebody meeting the FedEx truck um, at Orient Point and then riding the ferry, or sometimes they'll be helicoptered right onto the island. This is, this sounds like it could be complicated. You must practice this. <laughs> we do try to exercise um, our efforts, our disease response. Um, many states, especially Kansas, the one of, Kansas is one of the best states to develop exercises within the state that include both the laboratory and field staff, state regulatory officials, federal re- regulatory officials. I wish all states um, would do that and, and incorporate the laboratories the way Kansas does. It's a challenge, I bet, though, to get all the players together, Jamie, to try and, and do one of those exercises. It is a challenge, and I'm kind of biased being from Kansas and in this environment where this is a thing we do. We practice this. We're, we're, we're going to exercise it. Um, we've wrote grants to do it, and Farm Bill Funding has helped us do one, and, and the NOLM does exercises throughout the year. Um, and uh, anything from spleens representing prune, or prunes representing spleens to um, some paper chickens to practice our skills and how we would run this stuff through the, these items through the laboratory. So um, the exercises are very good, and, and they're always got a little bit different scenario. And so yeah, our, our state animal health of veterinarians um, and us work really well and closely together here in the state of Kansas. So I'm pretty biased. I've not been in the environment where it does not, it's not a, a thing that works well. So now you, I'm just going to be thinking about paper chickens all night. Um, but, but I, you know, I have to think you, you, as you're, as you're talking about what you're doing in trying to put this together, you can have a protocol, but if you don't ever follow the protocol, if you just dust it off when a sample comes in, that's going to be awkward. So these these exercises are important to be able to practice the way you're supposed to do this and make sure everybody everything is followed properly. A lot of the practices on the logistics, getting the sample here, running it through the lab, and then increasing capacity. Um, we talked about Christy talked about the standardization of the NOLM for the laboratories, and so we do have NOLM SOPs we follow for the assays, and so those are done for the surveillance and investigative testing. So we do get to practice those on, on periodically normally. So, so if, if you had a known problem and you were anticipating a certain number of samples coming in, but Jamie, maybe your lab only has the capacity to handle half that number of samples in the desired time period, Christy, would you be looking at trying to have other labs on call then that would be able to handle some of those? Yeah, absolutely. We can activate a single non-laboratory. We can activate a region of non-laboratories, or we can activate nationally. 
And what I try to do is if I know a laboratory has um, a foreign animal disease investigation, that's a high priority and it comes back as a presumptive positive and we're waiting for that confirmatory testing, I will at that point contact the other laboratories, at least in that region and have them standing ready. Um, it's a very confidential process. So we don't provide a lot of information, but we, I will call it a lab director and say, I need you to be standing ready for my phone call or, or um, email uh, for this, this, and this. Um, please keep it close to vest and I will contact you with more information when I can. So I'll do that for regional laboratories again. Um, and as if uh, something were to spread, then I would just go out to more and more laboratories. And we do keep track of the capacity of individual labs. And I worked, I try to work very closely with the directors so that they can let me know when they're reaching capacity and whether we want to expand local capacity within that laboratory by adding equipment, bringing more equipment in, bringing more people to them. Um, we have brought in people from other non-laboratories to support outbreak response. Um, or do we want to expand the capacity to other non-laboratories? Because remember, each laboratory has their routine testing for their state and for their clientele happening at the same time as an outbreak. So it's really up to the, that laboratory how much of their resources they want to put towards the outbreak response versus supporting their routine testing clientele and having us look to other laboratories to support the outbreak. And, and every lab may not be certified to test for every pathogen, right? Exactly true. Yep. Yep. So, so I will contact only those that are approved for that testing. Okay. So I'm curious. Um, there's this always a question about one of these one of these programs, the so what question. So what if you didn't exist? What would the consequences be of there not being a null? Well, um, I can say that for the highly pathogenic avian influenza outbreak of 2015, which was the largest animal disease outbreak that the United States has ever faced, I guarantee that the coordination of the laboratories that were activated and provided testing um, would not happen if we did not have a network used to working together and used to being called on for very high surge capacity, high throughput testing. Um, each laboratory in itself, again, our laboratories are phenomenal. Um, each on their own could certainly uh, do a lot of good work, but um, the whole is always better than the individual. And for HPAI in 2015, um, for virulent Newcastle disease in California, where one laboratory provided the majority of the testing to handle that outbreak, but still we sent individuals from other non-laboratories to help support the testing there. Um, and other laboratories in the network provided reagents when the California lab was running low um, and moral support, even moral support, I think they provided. And then even with SARS-CoV-2 um, during this COVID-19 pandemic on the animal testing side, our laboratories really stepped up and worked together to help each other out um, if one lab was low on supplies or reagents. Also, I'd like to point out for the, the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, the non-laboratories, and we are talking animal disease laboratories, were also called upon to test human samples. Okay, we have 
25 laboratories that are animal health laboratories testing human samples and almost 5 million human samples have been tested through our laboratories to date. So I'm pretty proud of that fact too. Well, Jamie, I think you run one of those labs, right? Yes, we do do uh, human SARS-CoV-2 testing and we have since uh, April of 2020. And now we're also into the sequencing and we do the sequencing for the state too to look for the variants. And so not only are we doing the human PCR testing, um, we are also sequencing and helping um, with surveillance for the state. Great, great. So I think that speaks even further to the, to the overlap that we have between animal disease, uh, human health, uh, the, the similarities and the kinds of tests that we use, the technology that we have to have available in these labs for animal health is perfectly appropriate to apply to, to human health situations, scenarios in some cases. So, um, so one other question I was going to have about, about uh, wildlife. So, you know, we talk about these um, leaps that can occur from from wildlife to other species, potentially from, from livestock to humans. Uh, do we have cases where we have uh, wildlife that are coming into some of these labs? And this may not be a known concern as much as it is a, a state lab concern, but um, Jamie, do you deal with, with wildlife coming in? Maybe, maybe deer and, and chronic wasting or things like that. Yeah, so that's again in the regulatory disease and part of USDA APHIS too for scraping and sheep, but that's a surveillance program. Um, and then, uh, yep, we do the CWD testing in deer. Um, Pseudorabies is another one we do surveillance through for the gnome. Um, and so some of those wild hogs, um, we don't get a lot of them. Our primary, um, we've done probably one wild hog. Um, but primarily it's CWD testing um, for the wildlife that we do at Kansas State. Other labs, Christy may be able to comment on do more of that testing. Yeah, we have, a, most of our laboratories do receive wild animal samples. So uh, if the clinical signs suggest one of these diseases, they'll certainly test for it. Interestingly, um, because NALN is part of veterinary services, um, within USDA, we do not have regulatory authority over wild animal testing. So for instance, CWD tested in a captive cervid is under our purview, but in a wild cervid is not. Most of the labs doing the captive cervid testing are also doing wild cervid testing. And so they maintain that level of uh, standardization typically um, across to the wild, wild animal testing. Well, I think maybe I have, uh, have come to a close on the things that I had in mind to chat with you about, but I uh, offer if either of you, uh, Dr. Christina Loyakino or Dr. Jamie Henningsen, if you might have anything you'd like to throw in about the, the National Animal Health Laboratory Network and its importance to our culture and society. Um, yeah, I, I'll jump in here and be the first to say that we, the NALM, and when I say we, I truly believe I'm part of a partnership. Um, the laboratory directors are uh, play the significant role. I'm just coordinating all of their expertise. Um, I'm very honored to play that part. Um, but our laboratories are the backbone to the infrastructure and early response. We're the first line of defense on the animal side. 
uh, for diseases that could not only hurt our animal agriculture industry, but could also significantly affect the human population and public health. So again, I feel like we play a major role in the defense of our country and our, um, and our animal agriculture. And I, again, am just honored to be part of it um, and to, to have those like Dr. Henningsen as part of our network. It's an incredibly complex scenario out there with all of the different livestock species that we uh, that we cultivate uh, with all of the wildlife that are closely related and the potential for, for overlap and the risk to humans as well. So um, I really appreciate having both of you here to, to chat with us today and to help folks better understand the tactical science in the, in the context of uh, animal disease and particularly those of high consequence, high contagion that uh, can affect not only our supply of, of those livestock, but also our, our trade routes. So I wanna say thank you again to Dr. Christina Loyakino from USDA APHIS Veterinary Services and the National Coordinator for the National Animal Health Laboratory Network and Dr. Jamie Henningsen, the director of the, uh, the National Animal Health Laboratory in, uh, at Kansas State University and the Veterinary Diagnostic Lab uh, at K-State. So thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. And we'll have uh, more podcasts for the Tactical Sciences Network. So be sure to take a look at our website and tune into those, web those podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us today.